Welcome to SGTM Talks. We hope you find this encouraging and inspiring. These two Sundays, these next two Sundays, are devoted to the vision of the church and the giving necessary to make it happen. Next Sunday, as Sally has mentioned, is our APCM, our annual parochial church meeting, our big governance meeting of the year. Uh, today, I would like for us to consider, and so I'll talk more next week on vision and at the APCM as well, but today I'd like us to consider the topic of money and generosity uh, as it's rather necessary uh, for making those visions happen. What Jesus is doing in this instance, the reason I've chosen this passage of Scripture about money, is because Jesus is speaking ageless truth, eternal, perfect principles And in response to the question that he has directed at him about material wealth, he's then speaking fresh and healing perspectives into the lives of the disciples and into the lives of the entire crowd. He's using truth to counter lies. And nowhere is that more necessary than with the whole subject of money. Because if money is not handled right, it can bring us down. If we believe the lies surrounding money, we can be in real trouble. And the Bible is really realistic about the fact that we are in a battle. It's a battle that rages 24-7, and it will not end until Jesus returns. And one of the main battlegrounds in our lives is in and around the whole subject of money. This parable that Jesus tells... Uh, to speak truth highlights and counteracts the main lies that we can fall for when it comes to wealth. Lies that the guy in Jesus' parable falls for big time. So in the time we have together, uh, let's listen to, let's tune into some of those truths that Jesus is sharing in this scripture in order to address those lies, shall we? Because we can't afford to believe some of the untruths that are around 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 money can't afford get it Uh, those lies let's be honest are pretty powerful they're very attractive um and and we fall for them i read this the world welcomed a new instant multi-millionaire last week one ticket sold it was in south carolina the usa won the largest ever mega millions jackpot of jackpot of more than 1.5 billion dollars The as-yet-unnamed winner can choose between an annuity over 30 years or a lump sum. If they go for the lump sum, the total haul after all taxes will be about $492 So there you are. You think you've won $1.5 billion, and you only come away with $492 What's the point of that? What are you supposed to do with $492 We live in a world that's addicted to the pursuit of wealth. And if we can get it just by guessing some random numbers, then so much the better. Now, it's into that world that has this focus on wealth uh, that Jesus gives a completely different perspective on wealth. And so what I want us to think about is, uh, is some of what Jesus is doing here, bringing, if you like, financial freedom truths through this one parable. Where should we begin? Let's start with this because it's important. Financial freedom truth number one, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He had abundance. Good for him. Jesus is not criticizing that. 
There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having riches, which is just as well because from a global perspective, every single one of us in this room is actually very rich with what we can, that we, the fact that we can eat and drink and have, find shelter and have health care and all of those things. The problem has, the Bible has no problem with private wealth per se. Jesus describes the man as wealthy before the ground yields an abundant harvest. He owns the land. He, he already has barns filled with grain. He's already rich. And then the ground the man owns yields an abundant harvest. And that's a good thing. It's a blessing that the land is so fruitful. Jesus doesn't have a problem with the fact that this man is materially wealthy. That is not the point that he's making. What Jesus does have a problem with is the unchallenged assumptions that one, more is better, and two, it's all for me. Let's be honest. It's not just this guy. We, we all do it. Who has said, uh, hasn't said at one time or another, if only I had more money, I'd be happy. If I had more money, then I'd give more. If I had more money, then I'd save more. But would we? Would we be happier? Would we be happier if we had more? Not necessarily, not at all. I mentioned the lottery. I'm, not, uh, I'm sure many winners who've won have handled things brilliantly but you only have to look at some of the many many horror stories of former lottery winners to see that money does not lead to immediate automatic happiness let me read you this willie seeley and his wife were simple people but all that changed when they won 450 million dollars from the lottery at first they just wanted to live a leisurely life but things didn't turn out that way First, they had to split the taxable sum with 15 others who had pitched in to buy the ticket, leaving them with only $4 million. Still, while Willie was able to leave his job, that doesn't work out, does it? Four times 15. It must be 40 million. Anyway, uh, still, while, while Willie was able to leave his job, buy the things he wanted, and do the stuff he liked, despite all that, he and his wife still consider the money a curse. Direct quote, a curse, saying it drew them unwanted attention from long-lost relatives and every television producer on the planet. His advice to any future winners, run. <laughs> and it's not just lottery winners. Study after study shows that once your income reaches a certain level, any future increases offer little, if any, benefit to your personal happiness. Isn't that interesting? In fact, rather than bring happiness, wealth can often bring considerable pain and sorrow if not handled properly. Don't get me wrong, poverty is terrible, but money alone is not the answer. Having wealth will not solve our problems. It will not give life its purpose. The purpose of life is not to get wealthy. It's as an end in itself. If we do get wealthy, then great cool but it's not the point of life the point of life is to experience and enjoy God's love it's to serve Jesus and to advance all the ways of mercy that Jesus has taught us and for that to happen God uses us as his hands and feet as his messengers with the good news and for that to happen 
We need people to be wealth creators. Absolutely we do. We need people who are brilliant at their God-given calling in their vocation, brilliant at what makes money, and then being brilliant at holding it so lightly that it then can benefit other people. So a fundamental principle of Christian discipleship is, that, is the idea that we're not to accumulate wealth to live lavishly, but to live generously enjoying God's lavish love. And the Bible warns us about the dangers of wealth because of the risk that it can, it can be, become between us and God. Not because wealth is inherently bad, it's not intrinsically evil, but because it can be so seductive. And it can distract us, distract us from putting God first. What does the Bible say about this? Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Having money is not the problem. It's the love of money that creates the problems. The writer Jonathan, Jonathan Swift, author of Gulliver's Travels, put it like this, a wise person should have money in their head, but not in their heart. Or in the words of the great showman P.T. Barnum, money is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. It's a common human experience. Money and wealth can be a huge battlefield in all our lives, and we all need greater victory. Today is a good day for you and me to check our hearts, to, to pray again, to, to learn, Lord, I just want to learn, Lord, the secret of contentment, the secret of contentment with whatever we have. Better the, that contentment is, is extricably, because that, sorry, that contentment is extricably linked to generosity, and that brings us on to financial freedom number two. Saving won't save you. Saving won't save you. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. For this man, it's an unchallenged assumption. He's just chosen a, a, a road of thinking, and he's sticking with it. His, his, his thinking is, right, I'm going to store up the surplus rather than share out the surplus. I don't know about you, but I understand this temptation. Have you ever felt that tension between giving to church or some other cause or charity that you believe in, but at the same time thinking how you could simply save it if it's there as, as an extra? After all, storing, saving, that's good stewardship, right? It feels like a binary choice, two distinct options, and you, only have, you can only have one, keep it to myself or give it away, store or share, lock it or lose it. But what if there was a third piece to the choice? What if when you share, when you give away, that's not a loss because it's not the one-way transaction we at first think it might be? What does the Bible say? Psalm 112, 5. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Proverbs 22.9, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of giving. 
Jesus went out of his way to show that and teach that time and time again. When we share, good will come to us, and we will be blessed. Those are promises enshrined in Scripture. God is not in the withholding business. He's in the generosity business, and what he gives back to us may be material, may be immaterial. He's more than capable of supplying either or both. The point is that God wants us to be generous to others in need the way that he's been generous to us. And the Bible does make this point over and over. Jesus reinforces it. The inevitable consequence of a generous life is that God will take care of us and ensure that all of our needs are met. All of our needs are met. And in his grace, he may even use the generosity we learn to bless and reach others who are seeking and needing to be saved spiritual freedom because God has promised that we can be free all learn to be free in our finances he promises to give us all that we need Philippians 4 19 my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus 2 Corinthians 9 8 and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all times at, in all things at all times having all that you need you will abound in every good work it's all your needs it's really important for us to remember this. It's not necessarily all your wants. Small but important point. <laughs> it's, it's, he will supply your needs, not necessarily your wants. And that brings us to financial freedom truth number three. Life is not all about comfort. This life is not all about comfort. Verse 19, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. It's a common attitude. If you've worked hard, you deserve to enjoy life. Makes sense. On one hand, I completely agree with the sentiment of that statement. This life, this world, is to be enjoyed to the full. It's a true statement. But to say it is true does not mean that it contains the whole truth of the matter. Because on the one hand, yes, we work hard and we save and we act with integrity with our finances. And so, of course, yes, we should enjoy everything that comes with that. But is it right to say then, to conclude that we deserve comfort like the man in this parable? And that is our sole focus. There he is just spending all his money on himself. You can just imagine what his house looked like. I bet it was just the, the epitome of, of conspicuous consumption. I bet he was spending, like I read the comedian Steve Martin, Martin joked, I love money. I love everything about it. I bought some pretty good stuff. Got me a $300 pair of socks. Got a fur sink. An electric dog polisher. A gasoline-powered turtleneck sweater. And, of course, I bought some dumb stuff, too accumulation gets a bit absurd at some point. We, we get to the point when we really don't need anything else. What, what, we, what we need is to give. And at no point does this man in this parable stop and think, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What I've got belongs to God, not me, and I'm to be a careful steward of it, regardless of how little or how much it is, in respect of of, of how hard I've worked to build it. 
After all, it's God that gives us the ability to work hard in the first place in this parable. The man's the landowner, but he's not the land creator. We might play our part, but the original ability comes from God himself. And so the point of having wealth is not primarily comfort. It's so that we can make a difference. If we offer whatever resources we have to God, he will joyfully multiply them and use them apply them in order to build his kingdom and it doesn't matter how much he can do so much with very very little just look at what jesus can do with a tin of sardines and a few dinner rolls honestly i struggle with this as much as the next person but in this anxiety driven world there is an extraordinary freedom there's a freedom that's on offer to us that we have to believe that's on offer to us that gives us a security and safety that way beyond anything we might feel by surrounding ourselves with more and more stuff. The lie tells us I can control the future if I have enough money. And this rich man thought he could. He wanted an easy life. But the irony is that the truest ease of life is only available by following Jesus' pattern for that life not great at it myself i want to get better i want to live here on earth with my eyes fixed on heaven because that's where true wealth lies and that brings us on to financial freedom truth number four wealth is temporary life is temporary live for eternity verse 20 god said to him you fool this very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. On face value, it may seem that wealth brings security, but the simple fact is that money is very, very temporary. Just ask anyone that's invested in Bitcoin or one of those cryptocurrencies in the last, I mean, it's, just, it's just so fleeting. But generosity rooted in love is eternal money is a part of life yes but it's just a part doesn't contain the meaning of life on that day when our lives are demanded from us so are all the gifts that we've been given by either blessed opportunity or sheer hard work however those gifts came to us the bible reminds us and i say it at funerals we are but dust our lives end what does the Bible say? Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings, like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. What a thought that is. Isn't that beautiful? Your money can develop wings. It's a horrifying thought, but it's beautifully written. Your money can develop wings and fly away. Have you ever looked at your bank account and went, how the heck did that happen? So much better to see ourselves as temporary stewards of temporary resources, permanently seeking the master for good planning and foresight where we should be directing the limited resources we have and doing things well. I hope you've picked up that that's the passion of this church. To do this church thing passionately and professionally, 
asking God to speak to our hearts and our minds, inspiring us to grow this church. Because this is his church. It's not about any one individual, it's no single personalities, it's God's family. And in the words of the high school musical song, we're all in this together. That's the idea of this picture back over here. We had this developed by an artist. Um, you can read about it here. We started this yesterday at our St. George's Day celebrations. The idea is that you take the ink pad. Where's the ink pad gone? Any idea? Oh, great. So come later, read this, and then stick your thumb or fingerprint on one of these windows or somewhere, wherever you feel something. That, I put mine in the neurology hospital because my dad was a patient there before he died. I could have put one in Great Ormond Street because my son was a patient there as well. Um, this is, it's, we've got the British Museum, Neurology Hospital, Covent Garden, and here's the church right at the center. It's a lovely depiction of us being church together. And it's a celebration of our 300 years and put your thumbprint on that. Because um, it shows, I think, when you put your fingerprint on that, and then we'll, we'll pass all the details on to the National Crime Register as well. Um, the, uh, the thumbprints in that picture, uh, they're each two things. Each unique and each equal in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. It's a very democratizing thing. It's beautiful. Uh, his heart is to love us and have us to share the, that love with everyone in this parish and beyond. Those people that don't yet know God loves them. That's why we are here. And that's why we want to do things as well as possible here in order to help people know and receive that love. Big part of doing that is each of us giving generously and investing for eternity. By way of conclusion, today is, as I've said many times, St. George's Day. This is St. George the Martyr. We have been here 300 years as the parish church. Today, Peter's going to lead us in communion using the 300-year-old chalice and pattern in our communion. The church was built in 1706, basically as a church plant, because the congregation was too big at St. Andrew's Hoban Circus, and so they built this as the city was growing out this way. But it was only designated a parish church in 1723. So today, our birthday, we celebrate 300 years of sharing the gospel, 300 years of feeding the hungry, 300 years of educating young and old, 300 years of loving with the love of Christ in this very building. This very old and very lovely and very crumbly building. But it shall crumble no more. We have, that's almost Shakespearean, wasn't it? We have, um, we have wonderful plans of which I shall tell thee more next week, uh, next Sunday, and at our, the, uh, the APCM. Please pray for me this week, would you? Um, as I head to a conference in America, I've been invited to go and help and speak, but also I'll be taking these, I've had these new business cards printed up. Uh, with my name and, and details on it. And on the back, um, a brazen QR code, uh, which, is, which directs, hopefully, some very generous personal people that I've been speaking to, to the 300 page on our all-new website, which goes live tomorrow. And uh, with this, I'll finish, and Peter will lead us in our prayers. This is what, hopefully, that... Pray that that sort of rich, generous person in America will read this on our website.
The whole of England is divided into parishes, making a map of the country look rather like a patchwork quilt of spiritual care by the Church of England. One such patch is the parish of St. George the Martyr, Queen's Square, established in 1723, situated at the very heart of the bustling global crossroads that is London. Our vision is to be a church for this magnificent city, rooted deep in the local neighborhood, but being here also for the businesses, institutions, and buried communities that make up and pass through the city center. Although only a half-mile square, the parish contains a wealth of world-class institutions leading the way in science, healthcare, education, law, business, and the arts in this corner of the Knowledge Quarter. Meanwhile, whilst this part of London is not densely populated, there are also several thousand residents, including many international students. At St. George the Martyr, we focus on four pillars to express our core values, welcome, worship, wisdom, and witness. And we stand ready to share the love of God with all who live, work, and play here in central London. The church building remains a haven of peace and beauty, a sanctuary amidst the bustle of modern life. But as you can imagine, a church built at the start of the 18th century requires a lot of loving care and attention. For over 300 years, the church here has stood strong and served the community tirelessly and completely self-funded. Please join in with this vision today and give generously so that the building and the work may continue for many more years to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness, for 300 years of faithfulness in this place. And we simply ask that we would be able to continue that and continue it well in the months and years to come. Release, Lord, those funds so that we can do amazing things. And most of all, so that we can reach so many people with your love. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to SGTM Talks. We hope you found this insightful and inspiring and can tune in again soon. In the meantime, try out our website, sgtm.org. Thank you.